The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We're continuing our study of this little letter, 1 John. And in this letter, John instructs his readers on how to have fellowship with Yeshua the Father. Hopefully you have that by now. I've been saying it enough that I hope maybe it sinks in. This letter is about fellowship. He's not trying to tell anybody how to get saved. He's trying to tell the saved how to have fellowship. In verse 3 of chapter 1, John writes, so that you may have fellowship with us. It's a purpose clause. That's why he's writing, so they can have fellowship. The main theme of this epistle is fellowship. Now, I'm stressing this again today because you're going to need to keep that in mind as we go through this. Colin Krauss writes this, John wrote this epistle to enable believers to appreciate their fellowship with God. And he wrote to deepen that fellowship alongside the provision of criteria to show the secessionists are wrong. The author provided other criteria which, if applied by the readers to themselves, would show that they are in the right. They are the ones who know God, who have fellowship with Him, and who have eternal life. Now, there are several terms that John uses in this epistle that throw people off because they, they're going in a different direction. But these terms are, are synonymous with the idea of being in fellowship. For example, he talks about knowing God. And when he talks about knowing God, he means in a sense of fellowship. He talks about abiding in God. Seeing God. These are all terms that describe the experience of Christians in fellowship with God. A relationship in varying degrees. You know, fellowship with God is um, not just a matter of greater or lesser intimacy. You know, you can grow in this. You grow in your fellowship with God. Now, some people think, well, you're either in or you're out. It's not really that. Okay? There's different levels of intimacy, and the more that you abide in Him and stay in the Word, you grow. Sometimes we just, I think, oversimplify this whole relationship with God. And, but, you know, God wants to fellowship with us. And He's told us how that happens through His Word. All Christians possess eternal life. We got that, right? <laughs> but not all experience the life as God intended us to enjoy. Back in John 10.10, 10, he says, I came that you might have life abundant and have it more abundantly. John's subject concerns true and false versions of fellowship with God. This is not an invitation to introspective doubts concerning salvation. As many people, you know, they, many people say, 1 John is a test. He's telling you so you can figure out if you're a Christian or not. It's not the slightest thing you know, in his mind. Okay. Now in our last study, we looked at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. In verse 18, he says, Children, it's the last hour. As you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Now John's writing around 80, 60 to 65, and he's telling his readers that, ant that the Antichrist that they were seeing now was an indication that they're in the last hour. That's how they knew they were in the last hour. Many antichrists have come, therefore, that's how you know it's the last hour. Well, 
Most people think they're in, we're in the last hour today. They think the last hour started then and it's still going on. It's a really, really, really long hour, okay? But the last hour ended in AD 70. But the Antichrist didn't end. There always has, since Christ, there's been Antichrist. And there will always be those Antichrists, those who oppose Christ, those who teaching opposes Christ. He said in verse 19, and this is a really important verse. You've got to get this if you're going to follow the thought here. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they're not of us. Now what we need to understand here is who is the us? He repeats this five times in this verse. And the us here is contrasted to the you in the preceding verse and the following verses. So what we have here is a we-you-us contrast. I see the us here, and we talked about this last week, as a reference to the church in Jerusalem, to the apostolic circle. That would mean, John is saying, these false teachers came out from among us. In other words, they were here in Jerusalem. You know, they were maybe even working with us apostles here in this church, but they left. And so... He wanted them to know they're not of us. They, they left. They're not part of this anymore. Because having from, come from the church in Jerusalem, they would have had a lot of clout, a lot of authority. We're from the Jerusalem church. We looked at that last week. So John makes it clear, they were not of us. They have no authority. What they're teaching is false. He's basically saying, listen, don't believe them. Don't listen to them. doesn't matter what they came up here from us. They're not part of us. See, most people want to take this verse in 2.19 and make it, be about Christians, and they're not really Christians because they left. They used to come to our church, now they don't, so we know they're not Christian. That's nonsense, okay? It's not the context that John's talking about here at all. He says in verse 20, but you, see the contrast, us, but you have an unction from the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Now the you here is plural, which is emphasized in the Greek text in contra, in contrast, contradistinction, yeah, I'll get that up, uh, Contradistinction to those who have left Jerusalem church. So you here is different from the us in the previous verse. You got that? Us and you. Now he'll say we because he includes himself with the church, but here it's us because they're in a different location. Us is in Jerusalem. You are in Asia Minor. All right? They're different locations. And he wants the writer, he wants them to know that this distinction is there. Okay. Now, John is telling them, you have been anointed by the Holy One. It's likely that these are pre-Gnostics. You know, we don't really know who is, exactly who his opponents are that he's writing about because he doesn't really tell us. But we get the idea they have a Gnostic view, so Gnostics hadn't come around yet, so this would be a pre-Gnostic idea being developed here. They were asserting that they had secret knowledge, and that was one of the teachings of the Gnostic. We have Knowledge that no one knows about. It's a secret stuff. You've got to get it from us. They claimed a special anointing which brought them this knowledge and get the, gave them identification with a deity. Well, John asserts that it was believers, not Gnostics, who had an anointing. And this New Testament does not speak of a special anointing given to particular individuals. Please understand that. Because if there's people out there today who say, well, i got some stuff inside scoop that you all don't have. The word anointed here is the Greek word chrisma, which is found only here and twice in 227 and nowhere else in the New Testament. 
The cognate verb to anoint is found several other places where it refers mostly to Yeshua being anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. Now, the meaning of chrisma here is disputed. The noun form may either mean the means of anointing, that would be like the oil or ointment, whatever used, you know, like that, or the results of receiving the anointing. The background for the term in the Tanakh includes the general use of anointing for purposes of consecration. A lot of things were anointed, instruments or whatever else, utensils that they used. But there was also a figurative sense of anointing, and we see that in 1 Samuel. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This is his anointing of David, and the Spirit of Yahweh came upon him with power. Now, in a similar way, Isaiah 61.1, we see that the servant of Yahweh was anointed by the Spirit to proclaim the good news. So this figurative usage or anointing with or by the Spirit is picked up in the New Testament. And we see this in Acts 10.38, how God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. So it seems probable that John's use here of chrisma refers to the, <clears throat> not to the means of anointing, you know, the substance or whatever else, but the results of receiving the anointing. You have been anointed, he is telling them. Johannian usage seems to point to the Holy Spirit as the anointing here. That's what the anointing is. It's the Spirit. Now, in, in our verse here, and you'll have knowledge, he says, that's a result of the chrisma. While in John 14, 17, Knowledge is said to be given by the paraclete. So you see the similarities there. He wrote both books, so he's using the same terminology. So the anointing referred to is evidently the Spirit, whom Yeshua gives to each believer at conversion. That is very important to understand that, believers. We've got so many people out there today, you know, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? Have you had this in the Holy Spirit? Listen, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. All right, look what Paul wrote in Romans 8 and 9. You, however, writing to the Christians at Rome, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. This is one of the clearest statements in Scripture that corrects this false notion that the reception of the Spirit is like a second work of grace. There's plenty of people that teach that. Okay, you need, yeah, you're saved, but now you need this other work of the Spirit. And you need to speak in tongues or do this or do that. It's a second work, they say. Now, some through the years have had the idea that, okay, you get saved, and later on, when you're really good, you get all of it. Okay, like he's divided up in parts, and you get a little Holy Spirit here, a little Holy Spirit there. There were many who believed that the Holy Spirit didn't come until and unless you had to get the tongues. That was the sign. If you spoke in tongues, you had the Holy Spirit. And if you never got to get the tongues, then you didn't have the Holy Spirit. And where does that leave you? I guess God doesn't love me. I'm a spiritless Christian. No, there's no such thing as a spiritless Christian. When Peter reported to the council of leaders in Jerusalem what God had done in accepting the Gentiles, his argument could not have been clear. He said evidence of their divine acceptance was that they had received the Spirit of God as had the Jerusalem church at Pentecost. That's how he's saying God's, God is reaching out to them because they got the same gift we got. They're getting it. One common characteristic of all Christians is the fact that they are indwelt by the Spirit. 
We don't need to talk today about receiving the Spirit. We don't need to ask Christians, have you received the Spirit? Every believer has received the Spirit of God. Paul says to his readers, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you. Now, the test of the possession of spiritual life is not membership in a church. Well, I'm good because I go to church. No. The test of possession of spiritual life is not water baptism. Well, I've been baptized, so I must have. No, that's not it. It's not sitting at the Lord's table. It's not attendance of meetings in an evangelical church. The final test of the possession of spiritual life is the presence of the Holy Spirit in a life. Because if you don't have the Spirit, you do not belong to Him. So let me ask you this. How do we know if someone has the Holy Spirit? I'll wait. Okay, thank you, Stan. They believe. Faith Belief in Yeshua. Okay? This is a test. You want to know if someone believes? If they have the Holy Spirit? This. That's how you know. Because, you know, it's not speaking in tongues. You don't look for signs and wonders manifest by them. The evidence of the Holy Spirit is faith. It's belief in Yeshua. Look at 1 John 5.1. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ, we're going to talk about that, has been, past tense, born of God. Listen, the Spirit is the agent of the new birth. If you have faith, you have faith because the Spirit indwells you. It's the only way you're going to believe. Alright? So that's the evidence. It's not tongues. It's not, you know, whatever else. They're jumping up and down or, you know, got the spirit of laughter or any of these other things that have come along if they believe that Yeshua is the Christ. On the basis of the work of Christ in His death, the Spirit is present with every believer. Now, the presence of the Holy Spirit in every believer enables them to perceive the truth of the Gospel. See, that's why you can believe the Gospel. That's why you can have faith, because the Spirit gives you that. But now arises the question of how the Holy Spirit enables us to know the truth. Because he's talking about here, you don't need this because you have an anointing from the Holy One. Is John speaking, when he talks about this anointing, an internal, private, subjective experience of the Spirit's leading? I mean, how do you know the Spirit's leading? You ever heard anybody tell you, God told me? David mentioned this morning, we had a couple visit a while back, and they said, God told us to come here. Once. <laughs> said, God, you need to be more specific when you talk to people. Okay? I mean, yeah. this is not some, you know, people say this all the time, well, God told me this, God told me. How do you know God told you? You know, how do you get that? Well, in view of his regular appeals to what he's been taught, heard, and believed, he keeps, John in, in this text, he's going to talk about what you heard from the beginning. And that's not an appeal to inner subjective guiding. That's talking about the content of the message. What you heard from the beginning, that same message, that's what the Spirit guides you for. All right? So being controlled by the Spirit comes from, listen, letting the Word of Christ dwell in you. People say, oh, the Spirit is the Spirit leading you. The Spirit leads from the Word of God, not apart from it. You get some leading that's opposed to biblical, and it's not the Spirit. He doesn't oppose the Word of God. All right. Let me show you some things, a couple of verses here that I think you're familiar with. But this, these are important. In Ephesians 5:18, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Be filled with the Spirit. The word "filled" is plerao and has the idea of controlled. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Be controlled by the Spirit. 
Okay, you know what it means to be controlled by alcohol, right? You don't want that. You want to be controlled by the Spirit. All right? <laughs> and then he says this. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Yeshua the Christ, submitting to one another out of the reverence of Christ. So those, this is the filling of the Spirit. This stuff happens. Now, look what he says in Colossians. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then watch, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spirituals. We get the same thing. He continues, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks, and then he talks about submission. These two concepts are synonymous. So to be filled with the Spirit is to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's not some subjective thing. It's spending time in the Word of God so the Spirit can teach you. These are identical passages because the results are the same thing. The result of being filled with the Holy Spirit is the same as letting the Word of Christ dwell in your life. The spiritual, this is the two sides of the same thing. Be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Word of God. Now that's pretty objective, people. Alright? And when people say, well, the Lord told me that, I'm like, well, if it's not in the Word of God, you know, you don't know. I know, but you, you know, you don't want you don't want to argue with them, okay, about their experiences. But if too often it's contrary to the Word of God, and that's the problem. Okay? Too often it's contrary. And then we have a problem. We say, that's not the Lord leading you to go against His Word. Alright? The Lord reveals Himself through the written Word of God. So if you want to be controlled, spend time in the Word. Thank you. Read your Bible. Read it over and over until you're at home in it. Until it's comfortable to you. Till you read something and you go, oh, wow, Paul said that in Romans. When you're reading you know, the Tanakh and you're reading through there. And you just you read it and read it and read it. You don't never have read it too much. Okay? You pray over the Word. You memorize the Word. You spend time in the Word. And when you say you don't have time, then you're just basically telling God, thanks for you done for me. I ain't got time for you. I got other things to do. My favorite show's on. Or I got to go play some video game. Or I got to go do this or go do that. People, if we're going to live in fellowship with God, we got to commune in His Word. We got to spend time in it. The anointing, John says, is something they have by the Holy One. They've been anointed by the Holy One. Now, oh my word, people want to argue over which member of the Trinity does this refer to? Yeah, and my, my question to them is, does it matter? You want to you know, spill tons and tons of ink arguing over which member of the Trinity is this? They're all God. Equally God. Now, the phrase itself never refers to the whole, to the Holy Spirit. The Holy One. The Holy Spirit is never called that in the New Testament. This phrase is found nowhere else in John except once in the fourth Gospel, the Gospel of John, when the disciples say to Christ, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now God the Father is called the Holy One. I think the reference here is to Christ because this is how John uses it in the Gospel. He uses it here the same way. So I say we can interpret the Holy One here as a reference to Christ. All right, you have been anointed by the Holy One. The Holy One has anointed you with the Holy Spirit. That's the anointing. It's the Spirit. 
So God the Son, that's what He told His disciples, didn't He? I'm going to go away. I'm sending the Holy Spirit. Alright, so again, if you compare John to this, it's just, there's a lot of similarities to what's going on here. Alright? It's a reference to Christ. Now, in the fourth Gospel, Christ promises to send the paraclete to be with the disciples after His departure. And the paraclete, Yeshua says, will teach them all truth. Just as John reminds his readers that they have an anointing and they don't need anyone to teach them because they have this anointing. Alright? Now, and he says, and you have all knowledge. That's great, isn't it? Got all knowledge? <laughs> this last phrase in this verse is translated differently by different translators. Okay, Young's Living says, and you have known all things. Yeah, Young's Little stuff. Did I say living again? Oh, I, can't, I can't get that out of my head. Young's Living Translation. Literal. It's, I get confused with the oil, I guess. You know, I need to be anointed so I'll, with the oil, so I'll quit saying. <laughs> All right, New, New American Standard, uh, Lexham, English Bible, and you, and you all know. Um, KJV, ASV says, and you know all things. NIV, CSB, and you all know, <laughs> and all of you know the truth. All right. Now, a literal translation here would be, you all know. The word truth is not found in the original text, so the translators, the NIV and CSB, they kind of add that to help us out. Let's throw, let me throw this in here. Here's what you know. You know all truth. All right? They want you to understand. Now, there's a Greek variant manuscripts here. You know, they're arguing over this. The, the KJV follows the Unical manuscripts, A, C, and K, having Panta a neuter plural used as a direct object, while the New American Standard follows the manuscripts Alpha, B, and P, having Pantes, a masculine plural, which focuses on the subject, you all. And I think that's, there's, better, there's better manuscripts support, support for the idea of you all. In light of the exclusive claims of the false teachers, I think the last option here is best. And the UBS 4 gives it a B rating, which a B rating by this is, it means we're almost certain this is the right one, okay? The anointing and the knowledge are given to all believers, not a select, special, intellectual few. That's what he's saying. You all have knowledge, okay? You, don't, you need to look to these Gnostics or whoever who are telling you they got some special secret insight. You don't need that because you all have knowledge. Now, the reference to having knowledge here needs to be understood in the context, Right? in which the subject under discussion is the denial that Yeshua is the Christ, God's Son, come in the flesh. He's not saying, you know, if you want to talk about astrology, you guys know everything now. You know everything about everything. Some people think they know everything about everything, but no, you don't, okay? He's telling them nothing you need to know about the matters, about the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine you've heard from the beginning. You don't need to go to these opponents to get the special secret anointing you have everything you need. God gave it to you. It's in context of that subject. So John is telling his readers that spiritual knowledge is not restricted to some inner circle. You have an anointing from the Lord Himself, the Holy Spirit of God, and all you know, not some, all of you know, every one of you believers, not some of you, not some special group, you all know. Universal knowledge. They have a built-in spiritual instinct that comes from the Holy Spirit. A power through the person of the indwelling Holy Spirit. John Stott writes this, The false teachers may have been using the word anointing 
as a technical term for being initiated into their special gnosis or knowledge. And that's the idea. You see, they say, we got some special insight. You don't have it. When John says, you all have knowledge, he's not saying, you guys don't even need teachers anymore. And I've seen some people take that, and that's how the translation. See, we as Christians, all Christians have all knowledge, and we don't need to be taught the Word of God. Well, if that's what John was saying, I'd be redundant, but so would he be. Because this whole book is about teaching them stuff, okay? So that's not what he's saying. What he's meaning is that Christians don't need any teaching apart from what is found in the Word of God. We don't need some special stuff. And when people come up with something that's beyond the book, you've got to write that off, people. Because if God is giving revelation apart from the Word of God, then we're in an ongoing quest to figure out what it is. And we've got to keep, wait, I've got to add a chapter. I've got to add a phrase. I've got to put something else in here. And it keeps evolving. No, it's done. The faith was once for all delivered to the saints. Okay? Jude says. It's done. Don't have to chase anything around at all. These pre-Gnostics profess to have additional truth. And John's saying, no need. You got all you got. When you got the Holy Spirit, you have the Word of God, just stick to the Word. Alright, verse 21. He says, I write you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Now, he says, I write to you, this is an epistolatory aorist, which refers to the, pre- the whole letter. He's saying, well, I'm writing you this letter he's talking about. The truth to which John refers in this context, context is the truth about Yeshua, that He is the Christ. Something that the opponents were denying. Thus revealing themselves to be the Antichrist. Now, watch what he says here. He says, because you do not, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and no lie is of the truth. So this truth versus lie Moffat here was introduced back in verse 6 of chapter 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him, now when he's saying this, he's using the opponent's argument. The opponents are saying, we have fellowship with God, but they're walking in darkness, they're lying. And they're not practicing the truth. So here it's the person who claims to have fellowship with God and yet continues to walk in darkness. They're characterized by lying. They're not practicing the truth. But in 2.21, the phrase, no lie is of the truth, refers to the teaching of these opponents. (coughs) Their their stuff is not true. So these opponents are walking in darkness. They are not in fellowship with the Lord. And they're trying to teach you things that you don't need to know or that are against the Word of God. So John is emphasizing the truth here. He says that they know the truth and no lies of the truth. John is saying, people, truth matters. Okay? Truth matters. And it should matter to all of us. You know, but in our day and age, ah, truth is not that important anymore. It's more how you feel about something than truth. We live in a day when truth is really minimized, which is sad. You ever heard the slogan, doctrine divides? Let's don't talk about doctrine. It does divide. Okay? But it's still, it's the truth, and truth matters. People want to set aside their doctrinal differences. Let's just all come together. Let's just all love one another. Let's, let's just all agree. Well, there's some things we just can't agree on, people. Another popular mantra that you hear is, well, Yeshua said they'd know that we're His disciples by our love, not by our doctrine. Well, the implication is, set aside your doctrinal views and accept anyone no matter what they believe about Yeshua. And that's the problem. We can't do that. Now they'll say, I believe in Jesus. And you say, what Jesus? 
Who is your Jesus? Who is He? Because that makes a huge difference. See, tolerance, unity, and love are viewed as much more important today than doctrinal truth. And that's sad. Because without the truth of the Word of God, we don't have anything. You know, they'll say you're free to have your own spiritual opinions as long as you don't claim that your view is the right one. I mean, that's what they'll say. They'll tell you that. You can believe whatever you want as long as you're not saying your view is the right. And this uh, prevailing tenet of postmodernism has invaded the church through the emergent church. I'm sure you've heard of the emergent church. It's a growing movement. They downplay preaching and teaching. It's more about let's all get together and discuss how we feel about stuff. So you've got a whole group of people pooling their ignorance, just telling everybody how they feel. I don't care how you feel. What, what's important is what does the Word of God teach, not how you feel about it. And, you know, to this group, nothing could be more arrogant than someone to stand up and say he's proclaiming the truth. You can't do that. That's what about all these other views? See, it magnifies uh, personal experience and accepting a non-judgmental atmosphere. Whatever someone believes, we'll accept them. See, we're so loving. We're so, man, you end up with a mess with that, people. Doctrine is important. And that's what he's saying here. Because the problem with these opponents is they're teaching false doctrine. And this false doctrine is hurting the church. Verse 22, who is a liar? But he who denies that Yeshua is the Christ, this is Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Who is a liar? This phrase has the definite article. John is referring to the, who is the liar? Well, it's the Antichrist. These are parallel. He calls them liars. He calls them Antichrist. You know, I think it's significant that John is saying this, okay? John is really big on the subject of love. That's one of the main things we're going to see in this book. Look at he wrote, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. In him there's no cause of sin, but whoever hates his brother is in darkness. So, you know, he's big on, listen, we need to love one another. You need to love your brothers. And just finishes writing about the necessity of love, and he says, you bunch of liars and antichrists. That's not loving, John. You can't say that to people. That doesn't sound very loving, does it? Who's the liar? The liar. The Antichrist. It, it doesn't sound loving. But it is toward the people that he is writing because he's trying to protect them from false doctrine. And he says, these people are Antichrist. He's not trying to be mean. He's just saying, that's what it is. You need to be warned. And he's warning them about the dangers of these people. He says, he who denies that Yeshua is the Christ. Now, finally, for the first time in this letter, John explicitly states the Christological position of the opponents. This is the opponents are saying, Yeshua is not the Christ. The Greek text literally reads, the one who denies that Yeshua is not the Christ. Now, the double negative in the Greek doesn't cancel out the negation as it does in English. All right? These false teachers were teaching that Yeshua is not the Christ. They separated the man Yeshua from the Christ who is God. The Antichrist lie because they deny that Yeshua is the Christ, God's Son and our Savior. Now I want you to notice Martha's confession. Back in John 11, I'm sure you remember this, her brother is dead, Yeshua is there to do a miracle. And he says to her, I'm, don't, don't, don't worry about it, okay? Because I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he says to her, do you believe that? And so here's her testimony. She said to him, 
Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God who is coming into the world. What's interesting here is Martha's words are almost identical to those of John 20, 30, and 31 that gives us the purpose of the fourth gospel. Okay, the purpose of the fourth gospel, he said, Now Yeshua did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. Alright, so you put those two together there. Martha says, I believe you're the Christ. The purpose of writing the book so that you would believe He's the Christ. The Son of God, both of them, we see that. So when Martha says this, she has really reached the goal that Lazarus' hope would be reached when individuals read this testimony as found in the book. Alright, Martha reached. This is what I hope would happen. It happened. Martha's statement is one of the clearest recognitions of Yeshua's Messiah that you're going to find in John's Gospel. And it's one of the fullest professions of faith found in the New Testament. She uses several different titles to express her faith. She calls Him the Christ, which is the Greek translation of Messiah, the Anointed One. She calls Him the Son of God. That's a title in the Tanakh of the Messiah. She also calls Him He Who Comes, which is another title of, in the Tanakh of God's promised one to bring a new age of righteousness. So she clarified that what she meant by Messiah was not the popular idea of a revolutionary leader, but the biblical revelation of the God-man who God had promised to send. She understood who Christ was. And that's where these people went wrong. They denied that Yeshua is the Christ. This would have been the position. Not, now, when you think about who would have held this position, well, obviously the Jews, right? They rejected them. He's not the Christ. That's not who the one we're looking for. There's others. But the other false teachers whom John alluded to here would be the Gnostics, you know, because they also held this view. Or the pre-Gnostics. Let me try to be accurate there. They believed that anything material was sinful. Okay? Therefore, Yeshua could not have been God's Son. They considered Yeshua and Christ as two distinct entities. They were rejecting the orthodox interpretation of the Incarnation, according to which Yeshua's divine and human natures were united. Back in the Gospel of John, and it says, and the Word became flesh. And He dwelt, literally tabernacled among us, we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of, of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, in verse 1, He said, the Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh. So God became flesh. That's what He's saying here. The Word became flesh. That's expressed by the theological term incarnation. Alright? That comes from two Latin words, in plus cargo, meaning enfleshment. It's the act of assuming flesh. God, the Son, put on flesh. He became a man. He chose to become united to true humanity. Why? Because Adam failed. So he came to complete and fulfill what Adam couldn't do. And he did. And the incarnation came about through the miracle of the virgin birth. Now the child Yeshua was to be called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. All right? At the Incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the one triune God, was forever joined to true humanity. 
And this joining together has been designated by the union, hypostatic union. All right? I want you to remember these because I'm going to give you a test at the end. All right? So the doctrine of the hypostatic union is the doctrine of the personal union of the two natures of Christ, the divine and the human. So the Lord Yeshua the Christ, is He God or is He man? Yes, He's 100% God, and He's 100% man. You say, well, that's impossible. He's the unique person of the universe, okay? That's where we get the term theanthropic, all right? Another term connected with the Incarnation. That comes from Theos, which means God, and Anthropos, which means man. Yeshua the Christ is the God-man. He is one person with two natures. Now, Serenthus, who was one of the opponents of this, he denied the Incarnation on the grounds that the virgin birth was an impossibility. No, that can't happen. He rejected the sacrificial death of Yeshua on the cross because Christ as a spirit, he said, couldn't suffer. And he distinguished between a lower God form who Yeshua came, and a higher God form who came in the Christ. So they're dividing this thing up. Uh, you know, that's all we really know about Serenthus' views. We hear that, you know, he was, you know, the church, the fathers came against him. But we, we don't really know, is that the heresies fighting here? It's very similar to what's here. Also, the Docetics, they were the forerunners to the Gnostics. And they taught that Yeshua was born in Bethlehem but he had no pre-existence. He came into existence at Bethlehem. When he was baptized at the Jordan, the Spirit came down upon him. The Christ Spirit. It lighted on him and made him uh, the Christ, the Anointed One, but that Spirit left just before the cross. So, a man was born. A man died. We're in trouble. Because as a man, he was a sinner. He had to pay for his own sin. He can't pay for ours. That's not the Christ of the Bible. That's what Paul calls another Yeshua. Okay? Different than the true. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians here, or 2 Corinthians uh, 11, 3 and 4. He says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and proclaims another Yeshua, see, they're proclaiming Christ, but another one then the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one we receive, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted. So Paul says there are those who worship another Yeshua. And this other Yeshua is a fictitious character of their own imagination. Any individual who bears no resemblance or relation to the true Christ of God found in the Word of God. This is not the true Christ. This is something people made up. And that's why... People, we have to be precise when we're talking to people. I believe in Jesus. Who is Jesus that you believe in? What do you believe about Him? What did He do for you? Because everybody knows about Jesus. Most people would say they believe in Him. In other words, yeah, who is He? Oh, baby Jesus, you know, Christmas, all that stuff, right? No. Most heresies go astray with regard to the person and work of Christ. That's where they... And these false teachers denied the full deity of Yeshua. They denied the incarnation that God took on human flesh. The modern cults go astray there. They deny His deity. They deny His substitutionary death. They deny the Trinity. Now, the Gnostics taught two things about salvation. This is what's really confusing. 
two equal and opposite views of salvation taught by the Gnostics. One group asserted that a special knowledge of angelic spheres brought salvation of the Spirit unrelated to the actions of the body on the physical plane. In other words, you live however you want, you do whatever you want, it has no effect on your spirit. Okay? So you can just do what you want. You know, that sounds like a man-made religion to me. Some guy thought this up. Hey, this is cool. We can do whatever we want. The spirit is holy. Doesn't mingle with the flesh. So we're good with whatever we do. Just live it up. It doesn't affect your spiritual life. People today still teaching that. Right? The other group <laughs> accentuated physical asceticism. In other words, total denial of the body. You've got to give the body nothing. Alright, so you get to take your pick or what? I'm going to the one side with, you know, the flesh, do whatever you want. That sounds like a lot more fun than do nothing at all, okay? I mean, if they're both, you know, if you've got to pick one, they're both nonsense, okay? It's not what this, but this is what the Gnostics were teaching, and John's opponents were along the same line as this. He says, he who denies the Father and the Son. Because listen, John, John chapter 5 is a, just a beautiful chapter on the deity of Christ, on his equality with the Father, but he says, if you deny the Son, you're denying the Father because they're one, all right? And in verse 23, he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Hang on to that. If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Now, this verse in the Texas Receptus followed the Unical Manuscripts, K and L, has shortened the original text by omitting the second parallel reference to the Father. The KJV following the Texas Receptus says, whoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, and the rest is in italics, meaning it's not there, they think. Okay? But the second parallel reference to the Father is strongly supported by the Greek Unical manuscripts Alpha, A, B, and C. So there's good manuscript evidence that the whole verse belongs there. Alright? The longer version is better manuscript support. You confess the Son, you have the Father. Alright? So he says, no one who denies the Son as the Father. John is repeating an idea here that Yeshua expressed often, recorded in the Gospel of John. Yeshua said, He who believes in Me, believes not in Me, but Him who sent Me. Well, I'm believing in You. No, you believe in the Father because we're one. He who sees Me, He said, sees the Father. He said, He who receives Me, receives Him who sent Me, the Father. Now, to say that the Jewish people who believe in God they believe in the God of the Tanakh, are accepted into God's kingdom, is not true. Because they deny the Son. You can't deny the Son and have the Father. You can't do that. You just can't do it, people. That's what the text says. If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. If you confess the Son, you have the Father. There isn't any way to have the Father except through the Son. Now, you could have before the Son came, but once the Son came, that's it. There isn't any true understanding of God unless you understand the God who is the God and Father of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now, I think it's pretty clear from this text. I think that's, I mean, okay, you get that? You don't, it doesn't have to be broke down too much, right? It seems pretty clear, but one of the most popular preachers in America denies this truth. John Hagee teaches a heresy known as Zionism. Okay? 
Religious Zionism teaches that God has a separate covenant with Israel, and then He has a different covenant for the church. Two peoples, two different covenants. This is often called the dual covenant view. God has a covenant with Israel. He's got one with the church. They're both separate. Which if you know your Bible at all, you're like scratching your head, wait a minute, uh, this doesn't seem to work. Hagee stated to the Houston Chronicle that he believes Jews have a special covenant with God and do not need to come to the cross for salvation. He calls himself a friend of Israel. He's really the greatest enemy of Israel if he's teaching this crap to people. He obviously disagrees with this text. He says that Jews can deny the Son and still have the Father. According to Hagee, Jews don't need to be born again. Hagee told the Texas newspaper, I believe that every Jewish person who lives in the light of the Torah, this Levat Torah, which is the Word of God, has a relationship with God and will come to redemption. Mm. The Houston Chronicle newspaper then quoted Hagee as saying, I'm not trying to convert Jewish people to the Christian faith. In fact, trying to convert Jews is a waste of time. Jews have already have a covenant with God that has never been replaced by Christianity. I'm not trying to convert Jewish people. People, this is troubling. So what he is saying is the old covenant, in the old covenant, God came to Jeremiah, through Jeremiah prophesied a new covenant. Right? And who is the new covenant going to be to? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. Right? You guys are going to get a new covenant. Who did Christ come to redeem? Look at Matthew 1.21. She'll bear a son. You shall call his name, not Jesus, Yeshua. Yahweh saves. You'll call his name Yahweh saves. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? Jews. Israel. So, was Yeshua doing something wrong here? He didn't see, he hadn't listened to Hagee, and he didn't know they don't need a new covenant. So he's trying to win them. He's trying to convert. Listen, Yeshua was trying to convert Jewish people. His whole life he tried to convert Jewish people. Look at... Um, Matthew 15, 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He came to bring the gospel to the Jews. He preached to the Jews. And after Pentecost, which happened in Jerusalem, when all the people there got saved when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, for ten years they preached to other Jews. The Gentiles, well, they didn't care about the Gentiles. How did God get them to go to the Gentiles? He sent Paul along and said, start killing them people until they get out of here and go start spreading the word. And persecution, they spread the word in the Gentiles after 10 years started to come into the church. It was all about the Jews. And here's Hagee saying, they don't need the gospel. Well, then Christ really messed up. Going to those people, dying for those people, living among them, preaching to them. You might be thinking, why do we care what Hagee teaches? Well, because John Hagee, he's got a church in San Antonio, Texas, Cornerstone Church. It's a non-denominational medical church. He's got about 20,000 active members, they say. 
But here's what really scares me. Hagee has a TV ministry that they say reaches 99 million homes a week. 99 million homes. And this is the garbage that he's teaching. I've watched his services, and he says the stupidest, unbiblical things, and all the people out there are going, yeah, 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 and I'm, I want to throw something at him. Like, wake up! Get your Bible and look that up. You know? Don't just sit there and nod your head. Follow along. Somebody say, no, stop! You're wrong! You know, the, the whole four blood moon things, you remember all that? Well, what? he must have been wrong somewhere because here we are, still here. I mean, the man is just malignant dumb when it comes to Scripture. 99 million people are following him. And you wonder, why is the church so screwed up today? This is why. These are the leaders of the church. These are the leaders teaching Zionism. Trying to get Jews to go back to Israel so God can kill them all. Right? That's what happens, right? In the tribulation, God's going to kill all these Jews, so let's help them. Get... I'm thinking, scratching my head. Don't listen to Hagee, you Jews. He's trying to kill you. But he says he's a friend of Israel. How can you be a friend and not share the gospel? It's just, well, i got to move on. i just on my soapbox here. This is sad, people, because this, I mean, it just demonstrates the ignorance of the church today. People don't read their Bibles, so therefore Hagee can say whatever he wants, and they're just nodding, yep, yep, yep. They got a Bible, it's not open. They're just waving it, yes, that's right, preach it, Hagee. I don't even want to get started on Joel. But I, I, can't, I can't accuse Joel of false doctrine because he didn't preach any doctrine, okay? <laughs> so, you know, he's a great motivational speaker, all right? All right, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Now, some have understood the first part of this verse to mean, and this is, let me try to twist this, no, uh, that's not a good word. <laughs> let me try to give you a different spin on this, hopefully, to help you understand in context of the letter. Some people read this, the first part of the verse, and they say, this is, says it's impossible for a true Christian who has the Father to deny the Son. I don't think that's what it's saying here. I think a Christian can deny the Son. I think that Christians, you know, sometimes you're being persecuted and their life is at the very point of death and they will deny the Son to save their skin. That happens, people. We are human. And 2 Timothy 2.12 says, if we deny Him, He'll deny us, but He remains faithful. Okay? So in other words, God's not going to let us go because we denied Him. He doesn't like that, of course, and it's not a good position to be in, but it happens. Maybe, you know, in this country, it's, there's no need for it, you know, but some people, like I said, people are dying, or, or, you know, we're going to kill your children, and you can watch them die unless you deny. You know, I mean, that happens. And so people do that. John, wrote, John is writing about an abiding relationship with God, not a saving relationship. Okay? Keep that in mind. This, this here has, when he says, no one who denies the Son has the Father, has the Father could be used by John as synonymous with know God or to have fellowship with God. Or abide in Him. All right, This is one of those phrases that in John, has the Father, and we read that and we think, He doesn't have any relationship with God. No, He's talking about being in fellowship. If you deny the Son, you're not in fellowship. You're not going to have fellowship with the Father. 
Because you're not walking in the light because you're walking in false doctrine. In this view, one who denies the Son does not have an abiding relationship with the Father. Now listen, this describes all unbelievers. Okay? They don't have the Father. But it also describes believers who are not abiding. They don't have the Father either. In other words, they're not in that abiding relationship. We're not talking about salvation here, people. We're talking about fellowship. Remember, these opponents claim to have fellowship with God, 1-5. Even to live in God, 2-6. But such claims are empty because they denied that Yeshua was the Christ, the Son of God come in the flesh. So he's talking to them, listen, I want you to be able to live in fellowship with God, and if you buy into this false doctrine, you're going to lose your fellowship. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Confess the Son, as you understand, is the opposite of denying Him. The word confess here is the Greek homologeo, and it means to speak the same. So literally it means say the same thing. Say, when you confess Christ, you're saying the same thing about Christ that God says about Him. That's what confessing. A lot of writers here want to say, this means a public confession. You've got to stand up in church and... No, it doesn't mean that. It means that you are agreeing with God on who Christ is. And when you confess the Son, it results in abiding in the Father. Now, a non-abiding Christian might not confess Christ even though he or she believes in Him. Both denying Christ and confessing Christ deal with giving personal testimony to your faith in Him. They don't determine salvation. Denying Christ doesn't result in a loss of salvation. Confessing Christ doesn't bring salvation. This is not the subject of John's letter here. and We have to keep context in mind or we'll come up with all kinds of different ideas on what John's trying to say. John warned his readers of the dangers of losing their fellowship with God because they're buying into these false teachers. If they reject the Son, they can't expect to have an intimate relationship with the Father. Zane Hodges writes this in his book, The Gospel Under Siege, the principal source of confusion in much contemporary study of 1 John is to be found in the failure to recognize the real danger against which the writer is warning. The eternal salvation of the readership is not imperiled. It is not even in doubt as far as the author is concerned. But seduction by the world and its anti-Christian representatives in a genuine, is a genuine threat which must be faced. Okay, so that's the warning. Verse 24. Oh, we'll wrap this up quick. Let what you heard from him <clears throat> from the beginning abide in you. If, you. if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Abide, abide, abide. This is John's favorite word. It's the Greek word, mano. He's talking about fellowship here. That's what he means by abiding. He's calling them to abide in the true doctrine. He uses this word six times in this brief section. Abiding in Yeshua, people, is not a passive thing. Is an active thing. You abide in Him by spending time in the Word of God, by living a holy, righteous life. It's an effort that we put forward to have communion with the Father. It's like any relationship you have. If you want a great relationship with somebody, what's it take? Work. It takes work. You've got to spend time with them. You know? You've got to quit being selfish and you've got to give up to spend time with this person and you've got to do things with that person and you've got to get to know that person. It doesn't just, you know, you sit next to them in a chair and all of a sudden you get to know everything. No. 
got to commune with them. you got to understand. you got to do things with them. Abide speaks of an intimate fellowship. That's what he's saying here. He said, let what you heard from the beginning. This is a present active imperative with a grammatical emphasis on you, which is at the beginning of the Greek phrase. Now, the false teacher's message, again, they were coming up with stuff, you know, but he says, what I want you to do, it's not some secret, it's not some new thing, I want you to hang on to what you heard from the beginning. He's talking about the beginning of the gospel. He, he talked about that in verse 1. If you remember back when we did verse 1 of this book, that's what the, from the beginning was. It's not the beginning of John 1.1, not that beginning, but the beginning of the gospel. When he describes the word as what was from the beginning, he's speaking primarily of the word of life incarnate in Yeshua. When Yeshua became a man with the gospel record, you need to believe that. You need to hang on to that foundation. He used it this way later in the book, in 3.11, when he says, for this is the message that you heard from the beginning. John's emphasis here is the gospel message hasn't changed. They don't have anything new to share, people. They don't have some special insight. It's the same message that's been proclaimed since the earliest days of Christ. Now, the emphasis of the rest of verse 1 is on Christ's humanity. So John's point would be that the message is not a new message of the Gnostics. Rather, it's the old message which has been proclaimed from the beginning of His ministry. That's what I want you to hang on to. And if what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you'll abide in the Son and the Father. If here is a third class conditional sentence which means potential action. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. But if you do, if you hang on to what you heard, you'll abide. This continues the warning and admonition related to abiding. Abide in Him. Keep that fellowship up. Now the phrase, what you heard from the beginning, refers to the apostolic eyewitness testimony about Yeshua as contrasted with the false teaching of the opponents. This teaching must abide in the readers in order for them to abide in the Son and the Father. See, if you deviate from the truth, you begin to walk in darkness. And when you're walking in darkness, you can't fellowship with God. We'll close with verse 25 this morning. This is the promise that He made to us eternal life. This is the only time John uses this Greek word promise in all his writings. Now the Antichrist deny that Yeshua is the Christ. We saw that in verse 22. But it's only by believing this truth that they deny that a person obtains eternal life. You have to believe that He's the Christ to have eternal life. See, the promise of eternal life is only made to those who believe that Yeshua is the Christ. It was nothing less than this God-given promise that was called into question by the doctrine of the Antichrist. John reassures his readers, this promise is valid for you. This is the promise made to us, eternal life. It comes through believing that Christ, Yeshua is the Christ. You guys have done that. You don't have to worry. Now, he says these believers have eternal life. Did first century believers have eternal life before the return of Christ? No, they didn't, but I mean, sure, many people would disagree with on that, but look at Luke 18.30. Who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Now, most teachers, most Christians don't believe we're in the age to come yet. They believe we're in this age, so therefore, there's no eternal life. I got into a discussion with my brother about this. He said, you know, where's mom now? I said, she's in heaven. I said, for you, she's not. What? I said, if you're a futurist, 
you know, she's not in heaven yet. She's waiting the resurrection. For us, the resurrection's happened. She's in heaven with the Lord. See, the New Testament writers lived in the age they called this age. The New Testament writers, the age to come was future. But it's near because this age, the age they lived in, was about to end. So how could these New Testament believers be said to have eternal life if the age hasn't ended? Well, I think there's two ways we can understand this. First of all, the 40-year transition period was an age of the already but not yet. In other words, God made them a promise. In act, the Holy Spirit is called an engagement ring to the promise. In other words, I'm making you a promise. I'm going to marry you. Here's the ring. Put it on your finger. God made a promise. God's going to keep His promise. They're going to get eternal life, but they don't have it yet. But it's promised, so it's the already, but it's not quite yet until the age closes. Also, this could be looked at as a prolepsis. A prolepsis is the representation or assumption of a future act or development as if presently existing or accomplished because it's so sure to happen. So when God says something's going to happen, guess what? It's going to happen. So it's a prolepsis. All right? They got eternal life because they're going to have it soon when the age ends. All right, so what we see from this text is that if we want to abide in Christ, if we want to live in fellowship with our God, we need to walk in the light. And the way we walk in the light, that includes a proper doctrinal view of Christ. John is warning his readers that if they let these lying antichrists deceive them, they're going to lose their fellowship with Yahweh. And people, I think this shows us the importance of doctrine. It shows us specifically the importance of the doctrine of Christology. What does the Bible teach about Christ? It's important. It's important enough for John to wrote a letter. John just could have said, look, you people are Christians. Don't even worry about them. Don't worry about it. Even if you believe the wrong stuff, it's okay. You're already Christians. You're going to make it. He wasn't questioning that. He didn't care about that because he was telling them, listen, if you buy into this stuff, you're going to hurt your fellowship. And I'm writing so you can have fellowship with us. Intimate fellowship with the God of heaven by walking in the light of the truth. He gave us a book to give us the truth. We just have to learn what it says. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word, Lord. Thank You for just the opportunity to be here today and talking about Your Word, discussing it. Lord, I pray You'd give everyone who's listening to this, who has listened to this, the heart of a Berean. May they not reject it. May they not accept it. May they study it to see if these things are so. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Amen. All right, any questions? Gary? Comment. You're uh, challenging uh, their baby and talking about Christ. Not giving, all he did was deliver his message to the Jews. He didn't even want to give it to the Samaritan woman. So, so ultimately, he just wasted his whole ministry and paid his right. Well, exactly. And that's why I just uh, I scratched my head. Like, how did these people hear him say this stuff and think, who did Christ come to? I mean, that's basic stuff, isn't it? You know, but I, I guess maybe it's not. You know, that, you know, Christ came to the Jews. People are like, who, who are Jews? You know, they read the Bible like it's written to them today. Hey, look, Christ came to save us. Uh, we're his people. Well, you're an elect, you are his people. But that specifically is a reference to the Jews because salvation came to the Jew first. The Jews had to get it and then went to the Gentiles. Anthony? You know, you're talking about two salvations. 
You want to do whatever you want to do. And what was the second? I'm sorry, two salvation. Yeah, oh. you say the, the flesh do whatever it want to do. Oh yeah, that's you know they're saying salvation is you can live however you want as long as you believe right. The other group was saying you need to be monastic, you need to restrict the flesh, don't let the flesh have anything. You know they were the ones who don't eat, don't drink, don't do anything. You know live on a live as a monk on top of a pillar. You know as the one guy did. You know that's that's how you you know achieve eternal life. Total opposite. I mean if you get to pick, like I said, I'm going with. Indulge the flesh, that sounds like a lot more fun. You know? Hey, you said that the, the, the special uh, covenant with the Jews, they just had to obey the Torah, which the New Testament strictly, uh, specifically says the law didn't save. The law did not save. You know, but that, that's the thing. I mean, there, you know, he. Christ came to redeem his people, and he, he says, no, he came to redeem some other people. His people forget it. They, they. Had, why did the new? Why did he promise the new covenant to Israel? It wasn't promised to the church. It was promised to the house of Israel, house of Judah. It's just, it's confusing, people. That's why. That's why I said this morning, in the beginning in the prayer. You know, it's, to me, it's so important for, you know, the, the certain churches. Just, I don't know how it's done, but possibly called a group. You know, conferences of all the leaders to preach. You know, what I'm saying what we were saying this morning. To spread, you know, because things like you said, not millions of people have been taught a lot of stuff. Well, I appreciate your optimism. Okay. <laughs> But you are very optimistic, because let me tell you, you get several believers together who have different opinions, and as soon as you start sharing them, you know, and that's why I, I try to, I like meeting people who have different opinions, because I mean, that's how you learn and that's how you grow, but most people are like, you know, and, and again, our biggest obstacle in sharing what we believe is that people, your average Christian, does not know enough about the Bible to discuss it. And so rather than look just like a total dummy, they're just like, I'm not, you know, get away from me, I don't know, you know. I mean, they might know the term dispensationalism. I doubt they can even explain to you what it is, you know. They know the Lord's coming in the future. That's all they know. How? Show me a verse on that. There's something about a rapture in there somewhere, right? You know, I mean, it's just, there's not, they don't know. They really, and I'm not trying to attack them. I'm just, I'm just saying, go ask people. You, you'll find out. People who are Christians. Have you ever read your Bible? What? Why would I do that? Preacher tells me what it says every Sunday. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> but then you also have the others that have gone to Bible school. They have sat in the church all their life. They've heard these truths, but they're just repeating what your un, what your pastor or whoever it is that's been teaching them from the pulpit. It's not true, because I don't know what they do. I don't know if he just, well, let me read this and preach it to them over the, that Sunday. And then they believe what they do. Well, you know, the sad state of the church today, and I mean, there are good, you know, I pick a lot on John MacArthur, but man, I love the fact that he teaches verse by verse. He deals with the Bible in context for the most part. I think he's off on some tracks, of course, but I, I've shared with this story before. When I, I was at the car lot, and Two of the guys that worked there were talking. One guy was talking about church. You know, oh, church Sunday was really good. The mess was. And the other guy looked at him funny. I'm like, what's up, John? He said, uh, well, that's what my preacher preached on. And he said, well, this, our guy gave this illustration. He goes, my preacher gave that same illustration. And they're going back and forth, and they're scratching their heads like, what the heck? I'm like, you guys don't get it, do you? And they said, what? I said, that's a canned message. 
They buy a sermon series, 10 messages on this. And I said, your preacher's preaching on this? Yeah, your preacher's preaching. Yeah, it's the same message series. They buy it. It's got the illustrations. It's got the scriptures. You don't got to do anything. Just you get up there and deliver it. And they were like absolutely blown away. They could not believe that was happening. But obviously it was evident from what they saw. That's just, that, in these, especially in these seeker churches, that is very prominent. You know, you, get your, you buy your message and then you're ready to go. And I guess you can play golf the rest of the week. Cause you don't. Exactly. All these things rather than teaching you. Yeah, the the teaching is all about how to do this better, do that better, and it's not about, here's what the Bible says, okay? And again, if you know God, you're going to be equipped to deal with any and every situation that comes along. I mean, if you really know God, you know, you're locked in, you're rock solid, because you're in fellowship, like Paul, beat him, beat him with 39 lashes, then stick him in a dungeon, and he sings, what would American do today? God, why do you hate me? Why have you forsaken me? You know, why are you so mean to me? Because Paul had an intimate relationship and he didn't really care. He says, none of these things move me, neither do I count my life dear unto myself. That doesn't matter. I'm here to carry out the mission and whatever happens is cool. That's a man who walks in fellowship. And that's, we don't see that a lot today because so many people are not walking in fellowship. Your comments about Anthony's proposal there of um, getting people together. You left out the fact that 95% of the people don't think you're going to present facts and logic to them, and they're just not. It's just yeah, we're really not in an error of thinking. It's more of a, you know, we need sound bites, something quick, we need some explosions to happen, some things that will keep our attention. And yeah, it, it's just, we live in a difficult time. You know, as far as people, you know, 100 years ago, they would sit around and have political debates for seven hours, standing. And people would follow them and track it. Now today, it's like, we, we just, we can't put things together. It's not you our culture. You need to tell me what to believe, what to think, and I don't know what to think. 